This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. Tom and I are just thrilled to be here today um, to give our first book talk here at home at UC San Diego. So we're going to tell you a little bit about our story, and then there'll be an opportunity for some Q&A afterwards. And I'm going to start telling the story because Tom, as you'll find out, doesn't remember most of it. So this is really a story about how our professional and personal lives collided. And it took every ounce of strength and stamina and the support of friends and family and doctors and nurses students and fellows here at UC San Diego to get us through this ordeal. So it all began when we had a vacation um, in Egypt over Thanksgiving in November 2015. Um, Tom was actually very fit. Um, He was a little overweight, but that didn't stop him from traipsing down a pyramid um, called the Red Pyramid just outside of Cairo, which this kind of experience, as I look back on it, was a metaphor for the next nine months. He was crawling backwards down this chasm in the dark and uh, on a rickety staircase, and I wouldn't even attempt it. And he was down there for a little while, and there's the, the, the guard was telling us there's poisonous gases down there, so don't breathe the air. And he's going, oh, famous last words. And you know, he's Anyway, I just never dreamed that a couple of days later, he would actually be fighting for his life. Um, first, though, um, we um, were having this lovely dinner on top of a cruise ship, and we were um, parked at Luxor, which is where the Valley of the Kings um, is, and we were supposed to see King Tut's tomb the very next day. Um, but we didn't get to do that because Tom came down with what looked like food poisoning at first. He was vomiting uncontrollably and, you know, complaining of of stomach pain. And I just thought, well, you know, we'll just let him ride it out. And I kept giving him water and um, the the chef on the uh, ship was, you know, making chicken broth for him and he couldn't keep anything down. And I carry around a little bit of antibiotics with us and I thought, well, Maybe he just has a stomach bug, and I gave him a, a Cipro, and he th- promptly threw it up. Couldn't keep that down either. So he summoned a doctor to the ship, and the doctor gave him some intravenous antibiotics and some fluids and said he'll be right as rain in a couple hours, and he wasn't. In fact, he was worse, and his stomach was getting very distended and sore, and then he started complaining of back pain. Well, the first thing I did was contact Chip Schooley, who's the head of infectious diseases at the time here at UC San Diego. And he'd helped us on a previous trip because this isn't the first superbug that we've ever caught. Um, But that's another story. It is in the book, though. Um, And we called Chip, and Chip was in Mozambique at the time. And he said, you know, if he's complaining of back pain um, and he's not, you know, getting any better, then, you know, really get him to the closest hospital. And I called the doctor back. Now, there was no hospital in Luxor. It was a small village. It's only there for tourism. The doctor came back and he said, you know, your husband is going into shock. And at that point, so was I, because this clearly was more serious than it looked. So the next day, Tom was actually taken to a CT clinic in Luxor. It was miraculous that they even had one. He was in terrible pain. Um, They were able to diagnose pancreatitis, which is an inflammation of the pancreas. 
But that was just a symptom for a bigger problem. And um, they didn't really know what the problem was. And they didn't have the um, tools to be able to, to diagnose things further. Luckily, we had travel insurance through the university. At the time, you were allowed to purchase travel insurance even for vacation. So it cost us $38 um, between the two of us, which is the best $38 I ever spent. Because <laughs> by the end of this ordeal, it, was, it paid for seven ambulances and two Learjets. So the first Learjet took him to Frankfurt because he was too sick to be medevaced home. And um, we um, had this you know, crazy trip in an ambulance and um, they, they got us there and Tom was hallucinating at the time. Um, he'll tell you more about his hallucinations because all of those are detailed in our, in our book. And um, when we got to Frankfurt, the um, doctor said, okay, we're going to give him another CT and see what's going on. It'll only take a few minutes. Well, he was in this CT scanner for over an hour. And when he came out, nobody was smiling anymore. And the doctor came to me in in the ICU room and he said, your husband has an uh, abscess the size of a small football in his abdomen. And he picked up a flask and he was showing it to me and holding it up. And it had this brown, murky, putrid fluid in it. And he said, this is some of the fluid that was in this abscess in his abdomen. We're going to culture it. He says, because if it had just formed, it would be clear. But it's not clear. It's, there's something growing in there. And I said, well, what, where is this abscess from? And he said, well, we took out a gallstone that was blocking his bile duct. And we suspect that, you know, he's had this problem for a while and he didn't have symptoms. So basically a gallstone can, can get stuck in your bile duct. If you, if you have gallstones, you want them to be too big that they can't get out of your gallbladder or too small or so small that they pass right through. You don't want them to be about four to five millimeters, which is exactly the size that can clog your bile duct. So I learned all this while I was, uh, you know, sitting in the ICU by myself Tom was like thinking there was hieroglyphics on the walls. He was just totally out of it. And a couple of days later, we got some news that inside this abscess was a superbug. That's a bacteria that is resistant to multiple antibiotics. And unfortunately, this particular superbug is called Acinetobacter bomanii. It's taken me a little while just to pronounce it. Um, a couple of months later, it made the number one on the, the World Health Organization's list of the most deadly human pathogens that are bacteria that are multidrug resistant. This organism is called Arachobacter for short because so many vets come back from the Middle East with it in, in you know, the 1980s and 90s, early 2000s. And um, many of them actually passed away from this infection rather than, you know, the, the shrapnel and the wounds that they received there. So I was just stunned because this was an organism that I used to plate on my Petri dishes when I was an undergraduate student at the University of Toronto in the 1980s. And I was kind of blindsided by the fact that an organism like this that we just, you know, kind of handled very easily, that only had lab coats and gloves, had all of a sudden become a superbug that was very deadly. And I learned that um, these organisms are really like bacterial kleptomaniacs. Um, they steal antimicrobial resistance genes from other bacteria. And by the time Tom um, was taken back to San Diego, his organism had 51 different antibiotic resistance genes in it. It was um, just horrible. It was, and 
It was only partially sensitive to a few antibiotics at first when it was diagnosed in Germany, but by the time we got him home to San Diego, it was resistant to even those. So what do we know about superbugs? Well, it's estimated that right now about 1.5 million people die around the world from a superbug infection. In the United States, the estimate that the Centers for Disease Control gave in 2010 were that there was about 23,000 people dying from superbugs. But just a couple months ago, a new estimate came out with using the same data and found that the lower end of that estimate for that same year in the U.S. was actually 153,000. So, and that's just the low end. So the CDC had underestimated the number of people dying from superbugs by at least sevenfold. And that's a big deal because if you don't really know how big the problem is, you can't leverage the, the funds and the resources to, to deal with it. And you don't know whether the interventions you're implementing are doing a good job. It's thought by the year 2050 that if things keep going the way they're going, that 10 million people are going to die from superbugs around the world each year. And that's more than motor vehicle accidents or cancers. And that um, the WHO and the CDC agree that superbugs are a bigger and a more immediate threat to human health than climate change in our lifetime. So this is like three people dying um, every every second. Um, And um, anyway, it's just a big problem. And how do we get here? Well, our overuse of antibiotics is, is a big part of the problem, but not just in people. It isn't just a matter of Um, you taking antibiotics when you shouldn't or not finishing your antibiotics when a doctor prescribes them. Those things do contribute to the spread of superbugs. But actually, the biggest source of superbugs is actually um, in agriculture because 70% of the antibiotics used in the U.S. and elsewhere are fed to our pigs and our cattle and our cows uh, and our uh, pigs, cattle and chickens, sorry. Um, And... um, it's not just to treat disease or prevent disease. It's actually to make them grow fatter faster because of our reliance on meat. So this was also a surprise to me. I, I thought that you know most of the misuse of antibiotics was in people and not livestock. And there's a big agribusiness that is pushing back against the desire for some people to try to have antibiotic-free meat. So if you are going to eat meat, it's a good idea to, um, to choose meat that is um, free of antibiotics or organic meat. Um, and um, the chicken industry has started to do that. Another way that superbugs are spread um, is through um, the um, lack of hand washing in hospitals. And hospital environments are a place where a lot of superbugs can be acquired. About 10 to 15% of people that are admitted to a hospital actually acquire a superbug there. So think of MRSA or C. diff. Um, Many of you may have heard of those. Well, back to our story. This is really how we, we got here. But Tom ended up being kind of the poster child for the dystopian future of the antibiotic resistance crisis that we're facing. And this photo was taken just a few hours after the doctors told me and his daughters, Carly and Jesse, that he wasn't going to make it. And, um, of course, we were just just horrified at the thought of losing him. And I decided to have a talk with Tom. Um, even though he was in a coma, 
um, his eyebrows were twitching and there were some days that we kind of thought he might be able to hear. And I thought, well, I'd like to try to figure out a way to save his life, but I didn't know if he wanted to live. You know, we all have these conversations with our loved ones about what would you do if you were on life support. And I knew that if Tom said like, that he was brain dead, that he would want to have the plugs pulled. But his brain was alive and his body was dying and I, I just didn't know what he would want. So I thought I'd better ask him. So this one moment that was captured by this photo um, that his daughter Carly took was when I, I, I said to him, honey, I know you're fighting really hard and if you want to let go, that's okay. But I want to grow old with you and it would be selfish of me to keep you alive just for my sake. But if you want to live, please squeeze my hand and then I'll know that you want me to leave no stone unturned. So I waited and I waited and I thought, oh, he's not going to squeeze my hand. And all of a sudden he squeezed really hard. Like, like I couldn't believe how hard. And I, I was so excited. I, you know, fist pumped in the air and I thought, oh no, what am I going to do now? I don't know how to solve this. Right. You know, it's like, I'm not a medical doctor. So uh, I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll try to do whatever I can, honey. And I went home and I did what anybody would do. I Googled it. <laughs> now, luckily, we're in a library, so I have to give kudos to the National Library of Medicine in the United States. We just gave a talk there last week uh, because they um, have a, a search engine called PubMed, and it's really a Google Scholar equivalent for scientists. So I used PubMed, and I put words like Acinetobacter bomanii and multidrug resistance and alternative treatments and up popped this paper, Emerging Therapies for Multidrug Resistant Acinetobacter bomanii. And buried in this paper was something called phage therapy. And I thought, huh, that rings a bell. And I went through the other alternatives that this paper proposed and none of them were appropriate. But this one, it kind of made something inside me kind of just waken up. Now, Phages are actually short for bacteriophage. They are viruses that have naturally evolved to attack bacteria. So for every, you know, prey, there is a predator. And what I learned through a little bit of homework was that phages are 100 times smaller than bacteria on average. And they're ubiquitous. They're, they're in soil, they're in water, they're in our guts. So if you're looking for phages to attack gut bacteria, the best place to find them is actually in sewage, you know. So um, this took me on a bit of a journey. First, I read a little bit more and I went, had to go way back in time. The f discoverer of a bacteriophage was a guy named Felix Durel, a French Canadian who discovered them in 1917. And he, there was actually a big war between he and another guy about what phages actually were. Were they an enzyme? He, and Durrell thought they have to be smaller than a bacterium because they go through a Pasteur filter and they still kill bacteria, so they must be a virus. And there was even a lawsuit over this. I, I, I get into the medical history in the book. But, of course, it wasn't until 1940 that an elect, the electron um, uh, microscope was developed and that we were able to see phages for the first time. This is actually a scanning electron microscopy um, uh, photograph, so an electron micrograph that was taken you know, much more recently than the 1940s. But in the 1940s, phages were one of the first things that scientists saw. And so Durrell was vindicated. 
So how are we going to find phages that are active against um, Tom's bacterium? Well, when I started reading a bit more and I found that phages are, you know, discovered in some of the worst places you could ever find, um, I, I, you know, was pretty stunned by that. Um, and I, I remembered that what we did in class back in the 1980s was um, something called the plaque assay. So I'll just lead you through this a little bit. It's just a little bit of science, but this is what, you know, high school students can even do this. So um, here is a, a flask containing, um, you know, your sewage sample and what have you. And if you get a um, bacterial uh, culture on a, on a Petri dish, you see these little blobs. Each one of those blobs represents a bacterial colony. And you can put um, little drops of your sewage specimens or wherever, you know, you, you're hoping to collect your, your phages from. You, you put them on top of the um, bacterial colonies and you incubate it. And about one to two days later, it comes back. And if it, there are phages there that attack the bacteria that are on that Petri dish, you'll see these holes in the agar that look a little bit like Swiss cheese. You know that there's a phage there that is active against those bacteria. These days, scientists have lots of these little micro wells and they can do this, these tests very quickly. But then they can pluck out the phages and, and um, add more broth and bacteria to them and then they multiply. So every time a phage attacks a bacterium, it often goes in and, and takes over the machinery of the bacterium and then makes more progeny of itself. And it explodes the bacterial cell and about 100 to 300 of these baby phages come out and then they go seek new bacteria. And the great thing about it is that they um, keep doing this until there's no bacteria left and then they're excreted by the body. So think of antibiotics. There's a lot of collateral damage to tissues, a lot of side effects. There isn't that problem with phages. So I thought to myself, what a great idea, you know. Could phages be used to cure Tom? And so I wrote Chip Schooley and I said, Chip, I know we're losing time and that Tom's going to die unless something is done. What do you think about phage therapy? And he wrote me right back and he said, well, what an interesting and intriguing idea. It might be ahead of its time. Turned out it was 100 years later, but, but it's like a back to the future. But he said, if you can find phages that will match Tom's bacteria, then I'll call the FDA and get permission to give it to him for, on a compassionate use basis. So at the time, this is what Tom looked like. He had this the abscess that I told you about that kept spreading. And because he was too weak for surgery, they kept putting these drains or these catheters in his abdomen. And he's just like a pin cushion. His um, lungs were failing, so he was on a respirator. His heart was failing, so he was on three different medications to keep his heart pumping. And his kidneys were holding on by a thread. So... This, our book is really not about the what, because you know that Tom lived. You see his picture on the, the cover. You see his name on the front. It's really about the how. So I won't lead you through the long and gory details about how we got the phages for Tom. But suffice it to say that, that three weeks after I sent my emails out to total strangers from around the world, we had phages ready for Tom. And um, people from... Uh, all sorts of places helped. Texas A&M turned their lab into a command center. The U.S. Navy Medical Research Center came to help researchers from Belgium, 
Switzerland, India all offered phages. The Belgians offered their phages in a diplomatic pouch. And at the very last minute, San Diego State University had to repurify the phages because we realized that we were going to have to inject them into Tom's bloodstream because he was fully colonized with this bacterium. So this was the day that we actually administered the phage therapy. Uh, the hardcover of our book has photographs like this one in it. And the publisher said they did that because people were telling them that the story was so fantastical that it couldn't possibly be true. So we decided to prove it. And, um, you know, Dr. Chip Schooley is on the, the left and uh, Dr. Randy Taplitz is on the right. And this is the phage preparation that was put together by the UC San Diego Investigational Pharmacy Unit um, with all of the different labeling that's required for an investigational new drug. And it was very scary because we knew that each dose of phage that was being given to Tom was about a billion phages. Now, that's the dose you're giving to him, but you don't know that the dose he's actually getting because in this case, the drug is alive, right? These phages are multiplying inside him. So we didn't really know if we were giving him too much or too little phage. We just had to kind of guess. And we also didn't know if we had purified the phages enough because if we hadn't, he could have died from septic shock. So it was one of the scariest moments of my life when we did this. First, the phages were put into the catheters in his abdomen, and he survived that and seemed to be stable. And then when we got the Navy phages, they were um, thought to be more potent. So two days later, we injected those phages into his bloodstream. And again, you know, there was no adverse effects. And then he started to come around. In fact, three days later, Tom lifted his head off the pillow opened his eyes and kissed his daughter's hand. Well, when I heard that he woke up, I just, I just couldn't believe it. I was so excited. And I went into the hospital the very next morning and he was fully in septic shock and a coma again. And I thought, oh no, we're killing him. In fact, Dr. Schooley thought we were killing him too. So there was, we weren't out of the woods yet by any stretch. But eventually, um, we, um, you know, we restarted the phage therapy because we thought we were killing. We had to stop it, and we started it again. And um, within the next couple of days, Tom woke up and started making a miraculous recovery. So here he is, about three weeks after phage therapy began, he's able to sit up. He's still on the ventilator at this point, um, but he had a lot of rehab to do. He'd lost 100 pounds, all of his muscle mass. And he had to learn how to swallow again, how to speak again, how to walk again, all of it. So he was in the hospital a total of nine months. And he came out of the hospital in August of 2016. There he is with his Superman shirt. We couldn't be happier. Now, um, Tom turned out to be the first person in the United States to be um, treated with intravenous phage therapy um, who had a systemic superbug infection. And um, when his case was presented at what was the 100th anniversary of the discovery of bacteriophage at the Pasteur Institute in France, his story went viral, but in a good way. (laughs) 
So we started getting calls here at UC San Diego from everybody all over the world. The first calls came from China, then Malaysia, then Spain, then Canada, then Australia, New Zealand, Mexico, Chile. And, I, you know, I was just couldn't even keep up with them all. And we also started treating other people with phage therapy um, who had superbug infections. And we've treated five other people here. There's several others that are about to be treated. And these are their cases. So Tom was patient number one. We've treated um, patients with lung transplants, open head trauma, uh, cystic fibrosis, um, and also people who have had these left ventricular assist devices that are devices that are um, implanted to make their heart pump. And uh, here's one um, photo of us meeting John. Uh, this pa- uh, picture is, is shared with permission. We were at the hospital. He was patient number two. Um, and um, we gave him a copy of the book just a couple weeks ago. Um, the, not all of the stories are, have been successful or happy endings. This um, is a, a picture of Mallory Smith and her parents. When they heard the story of Tom and, and how we saved him with phage therapy, her dad contacted me. Mallory was a um, 25-year-old girl with cystic fibrosis who had had a double lung transplant, and um, she had her new lungs were being attacked by a superbug. It was a rare superbug called Buccaldaria sepatia. And we, her father was hoping that we could find phages to match. And I didn't know anybody who had phages against this organism. So I, I actually turned to Twitter and started crowdsourcing phages for her. And this is my actual tweet about asking, you know, phage researchers. I'm working with a team to get um, Buccaldaria sepatia phages to this girl. And it was um, retweeted 432 times. Now, it turned out that we actually got phages that matched her organism. They were being prepared, but her, she'd already started to die. She, they were keeping her on life support for the phages to come. And she only had a couple of small little doses. And in fact, after she passed away, the, it was found that the phages had reached her lungs. So that it's believed that if we'd gotten just a few days earlier to her that she would have made it and her parents actually have a a book that um, is Mallory's memoir that's coming out in about a week and all of the proceeds are being dedicated to phage therapy. Now, as a result of this attempt of mine to try to crowdsource phages for Mallory, a, a, a tweet that I sent saying, wouldn't it be nice if phage researchers and, and um, you know, people who are patients and their families could find each other so that we didn't have to you know, reinvent the wheel each, each time. And uh, two graduate students set up what's called Phage Directory. Um, it's a nonprofit that is meant to help people find phages uh, from different researchers. So there's all sorts of legacies of Mallory's story, even though we, she didn't make it. But just this past year, we had some great news because our chancellor decided to fund our Center for Phage Therapy, which is the Center for Innovative Phage Applications and Therapeutics, IPATH, as we call it. It's the first dedicated phage center in North America. There's other universities and research centers around the U.S. and maybe even Canada that are wanting to join this effort. And we're very excited. It was, um, its debut was profiled in Science Magazine. Um, here's Tom and I with another patient. Um, this is Joel. Again, his um, 
photo is being shared with permission. He had one of these LVAD devices that um, was keeping his heart pumping. And um, the, because it's implanted hardware, they get covered with a slime or kind of a, what's called a biofilm, and antibiotics can't penetrate it. So he had this terrible infection, and when he needed to get a heart transplant, the doctor said, there's no way we're going to transplant you. And he heard about phage therapy, came down to us. We treated him for two weeks um, as an outpatient, and he cured, cleared his infection, got his heart transplant, and was out of the hospital before I could even get there to meet him. So we had lunch with him on this particular day. So his protocol is now being upheld as the future for that. So now we have two clinical trials in development at IPATH. We have one for VAD patients like Joel, and we also have um, one that's being planned for cystic fibrosis patients like Mallory. And we're hoping to fundraise and scale this up because if these trials prove to be effective, in the long run, phage therapy could be approved by the FDA, um, not just for compassionate use, but for regular use alongside antibiotics. So what started with me trying to save my husband's life has turned into something much bigger. It's turned into something that could be an important weapon in the global superbug crisis. And it took a village for us to get here. Um, and um, these are just a few of, of the faces. Many University of California, San Diego, doctors, nurses, especially in the ICU, um, and many friends and students, some of whom are in the audience today, we just want to tell you um, that we're very grateful because it isn't just Tom's body that needed the support. It was his spirit. And that's why we decided to write our book, The Perfect Predator, A Scientist Race to Save Her Husband from a Deadly Superbug. And um, without any further ado, I will just introduce you to Tom and then we'll have a Q&A. So thank you very much for your time. Well, I think it's needless to say that the first lesson from all of this is you need to choose wisely when you choose your spouse. <laughs> Plan ahead. I'm not going to show any slides, mostly because my experience was in my brain, and I can't show you that. I can tell you that um, the experience was, for both of us, totally different. That was something that we didn't discover until we got home. Initially, we came home and we were both talking and the initial hallucination that I had had, it wasn't actually the very first, but the first one that triggered this understanding that we had two different experiences was, she said, remember when you were in Germany and you had that projectile vomiting? I said, I, I was a Buddha. I was giving a gift. I, was, I opened my mouth and streams of beautiful foil streamed across the room and everybody celebrated running around the room. She said, yeah, right. <laughs> so we had many experiences. And the question that I often get is, is this real, number one? Can you really remember this? Psychiatrist, psychologist, it's rare that you remember in detail the way I do all of these experiences. For me, it's part of my memory. It isn't like, gosh, this was a dream. I was a snake. I wandered through the desert for a hundred years. 
I was a Buddha. I had all of these experiences. Where did all that come from? What's this wackiness about? Well, I had a lot of toxin from this infection. I was getting antibiotics, which are toxic themselves and have side effects. My feet are numb, for example, from those. I wasn't getting any sleep because they're coming into your room every five minutes to see if you're alive, poke you, you know, draw more blood and check you out. And being in a ICU, you're almost guaranteed you're going to have ICU psychosis anyway. My, one of my uh, best friends and colleagues is Davy Smith, and he had had an experience, and he came to me early on, and he said, you're going to have uh, hallucinations, you're going to become psychotic. And I thought, no. <laughs> of course, I had already been psychotic and didn't even have that insight to realize it. So that's, you know, what, what happens. Now, the other part of being in a coma is people think you're a loaf of bread. There's, you got nothing going on there. You know, you're just laying there. You see me with my mouth hanging open, waiting for the flies to come in. But actually, I could hear. I wasn't hearing like you and I could have a conversation here, but I heard faraway voices. And when I heard those voices, I incorporated them into my goofy mind, this polluted brain that I had and made up these fantastical stories about what was going on. So when I dreamt or hallucinated that I was in the desert for a hundred years and met with three wise men, probably what was going on is we had just come from the desert and I wasn't able to drink anything. And so I'm thirsty. And so I start thinking, I'm still in the desert. What the hey? And then three wise men. Well, these doctors come in threes, fours. I mean, they were in my room all the time. They're standing over me. They're talking to me about, you know, what's going on, talking to each other. So they're the wise men in my story. And the snake, when I was a snake, well, I had a tube down my throat, stuffed down my throat. I felt that go down my throat. So that was a snake. I became a snake. Now, more than 50% of people who go into a coma come out of it cognitively impaired. Now, you might argue that I'm already cognitively impaired as I speak to you, but I'm going to argue that I'm okay. <laughs> and I hope you agree with me at least partially. You're not going to argue too much. And I think the way I maintained my cognitive ability was because of friends, some of whom are here today that came to visit me and talked spoke to me. Stephanie and other friends organized visiting to my bedside so that there was somebody by me 24-7. They had to schedule it so that people wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't overlap too much. That kept me, my brain, going. My daughters, one of them plays music. She sat and played music to me. She'd talk about silly things. Remember driving up the freeway? You know, the first exit is this. And, you know, she was burned up. I mean, nine months in the hospital. She was running out of things to say. She, <laughs> she'd talk about anything and everything. The other one, got a, I'm a bird watcher. 
She got a bird book. She's reading all the birds to me. I think I'm a better birder today for it. <laughs> so message to you. If you are, have a friend, a loved one who's in the hospital, visit them. Be careful what you say because they may be hearing what you're saying. The other thing I'll mention to you is I was, when somebody touched me, it was like an electric shock. It just, I couldn't believe how much energy I felt like I got. The emotion that I had when I came out of my coma and I was, and I realized just how many people had advocated for me all over the world. You know, people were lighting candles in Mexico and Europe, Africa, all over the place. They're sending messages to learn just how much people care for you is really incredibly hard or, you know, rewarding, if you will. But I think the other thing that people don't realize is this experience is a physical one, but it's at least as much a psychological one. And coming out of this, everybody in my family had PTSD. They all needed to go through therapy because it is, you know, here I am practicing dying is the way I project it. <laughs> Seven times in septic shock, getting near death. And so having that experience, and they all think I'm dying each time, that's hard on them. And I feel like, you know, people need to understand this isn't when you're going through something physical, it's more than that. It's just as much psychological. And um, I don't want to spend, I can answer questions, but we're going to take a break. I just want to say to you, too, just a final word is, we don't know for certain that phage therapy is going to work on a large scale. We're very hopeful that it is. I stand before you as evidence-based hope that it does, in fact, work. And that's what we're here to try to get the message to you. So I'm going to stop there, and we're going to, um, they need to set up a little bit for questions. So if you just bear with us. And what is the lifespan of a typical phage? What is the lifespan of a typical phage? Well, there, there was one um, little experiment that we did on Tom. I mean, he really was a big guinea pig throughout the whole thing. But um, after he lived um, and we were still administering phage to him, um, we uh, decided to try to determine how long that, and where the phages were going. We didn't radio label them, but we did um, a kind of a crude um, PK study, it's called. So we injected the phage into him, and we measured, um, you know, we took blood each, each for periods of time, so one minute, five minutes, one hour. And, and within five minutes, all of the phage, all one billion phages were gone. So at the time, we weren't really sure whether they were going to where they needed to go to kill the bacteria or if they were being, um, you know, removed by what's called the reticuloendothelial system or part of the uh, liver and the spleen, which filter out phage. But we know that they, they, at least some of them got to their intended target. So what we hope to do in some of these future trials is actually radio label the phage and, tr and to try to, you know, monitor where it goes and that we'll be able to address those questions. But those are some of the, the future um, questions that we need to, to address for phage therapy to be um, scaled up.
very sophisticated audience. I, I knew we would have good questions. Um, so you had a background in science, but do you think that if you didn't have an education, in, especially in bacteria and viruses, do you think you would have been able to gather the same support and the same um, like answer to find phage? Yeah, I guess um, I feel like I, I'm privileged um, and that without having the resources that um, came with my education and my connections through the scientific world, we probably wouldn't have gotten all of it and been able to cut through the red tape that we had. So that's one of the reasons that we're doing you know, this and write, speaking about our story and fundraising for phage therapy research and writing our book because we want to make it easier for other people to obtain phage therapy, first as a, on a compassionate basis for emergency cases, but also later you know, through regular use if it can be um, licensed by the FDA. So thank you. Hi, uh, a really moving story, and thank you for being here and even writing the book. Uh, it's really good to spread awareness about this. Uh, I'm a student here, and uh, I just wanted to ask, as a student and just as a society, how can we uh, move towards uh, being like uh, more aware about this and maybe even like preventing incidences of superbugs? One thing you mentioned was the uh, thing about um, organic like produce, but uh, any other ways that you would recommend? Well, there's lots of things that people can do um, on an individual level. You know, certainly your purchasing power um, has choices, um, but also making policymakers more aware of of the threat of superbugs. And um, like right now, some of the legislation that's being passed in the federal government is actually going to make the superbug crisis worse um, because antibiotics are being sprayed on citrus trees, for example. There's no reason for that. Um, there are alternatives to antibiotics, but most of the industry is focused on new antimicrobials that are antibiotics. And, and there's almost none in the pipeline for gram-negative bacteria, which are the same kind of bacteria that Tom had. So um, I think that you know, making people aware that, that our alternatives to antibiotics are, are important, um, that we can't just... Um, treat our way out of, of this crisis. And we need to have like, um, you know, a, a multilateral kind of approach to this. So it's um, engaging um, other countries as well, because um, if we keep using the same kinds of antibiotics on, in livestock that we use to treat people, we're going to be promoting the spread of superbugs. And pharmaceutical companies haven't been doing a, a very good job of kind of, of stewarding their antibiotics and their products. And so when the manufacturer of antibiotics is happening, the effluent is being um, discharged into um, you know nearby communities, and that too is spreading superbugs. So there's lots of different ways that, that um, we need to get engaged. But um, raising our own awareness and mobilizing as communities um, is is going to be important, and that's what we're trying to do. Thank you. Uh uh, amazing story. Uh, this has movie written all over it. Scarlett Johansson, George Clooney. Any potential there? Thank you. Um, we, we're not allowed to say publicly, um, but um, the movie rights have just recently been sold. So um, stay tuned. We've been talking to George. <laughs> so stay tuned for more details on that. A press release will be coming out um, maybe by the time this uh, video is even online. In this particular situation, what is the presumed... Um, 
way that Tom got the infection. I mean, I, we saw the pictures of him going down into a cave with those murky steps. And it was is it something you inhale or something you eat by mouth? or Phages, I mean, uh, this bacteria is everywhere. This particular bacteria was an Egyptian strain. So we know we got it. I got it there. We, I, I got it there. We don't, we'll never know exactly how I got it. I could have gotten it from the soil. I could have gotten it when I went down that pyramid. I probably got it in the clinic, just like most people get superbugs. And they put a tube down my nose, and that's probably where I got it. But we don't know that for certain and never will. Would Lyme's disease possibly be a candidate for this therapy? We're getting a lot of questions and requests for phage therapy from people who are suffering from Lyme disease and the constellation of symptoms that they experience as a result of it. Um, but at this point, um, it's a very tricky um, organism to match phages to. There's two life cycles to the phage um, that I, I describe in the book um, in layman's terms. One is what you know I refer to as phage rage, where the phage attacks the bacterium and turns it into a ma- phage manufacturing plant and then blows it up. Um, that's the lytic cycle. The other cycle is the, called the temperate um, phage. Um, and it, these phages go into the bacterial cell and integrate their DNA into the bacterial cell DNA and, and hit the snooze button, as I say. And that's not what you want for phage therapy. And some organisms tend to have phages that are more temperate in nature. So tuberculosis or Lyme and C. diff. And so um, we are getting better as a, a field in terms of trying to convince temperate phages to become lytic. In fact, um, there's a case that will be presented very soon as a result of Tom's case there was a genetically modified phage that was actually prepared to treat someone successfully. And that is a world first. When we get better at doing that, we will hopefully be able to help um, some patients with these other infections. But thank you for asking. It's, it's certainly going to be a challenge. I, uh, I'm wondering, uh, Stephanie, you mentioned that um, oh, yes. nationally... Uh, things seem to be going in the wrong direction in terms of feeding antibiotics to livestock, etc. Is it something that could be handled state? I mean, if we could get some of our legislators in California to, you know, pass laws about this, is that an option? That would make a difference. Actually, California is one of the more progressive states and has made um, strides um, in the right direction. Um, there's other things that need to be done too. So, reporting requirements for superbugs. Um, each state is different in terms of whether or not um, a, a superbug that's acquired in a hospital has to be reported. Right now, only MRSA is the one that's like federally required. Um, hospitals really push back against that because it costs them money if there seems to be a MRSA infection that was acquired in the hospital. Um, but then on the other hand, there's a lot of other organisms that are even deadlier. So um, we, we need to be counting better. We need to be um, monitoring better. We need to have antibiotic stewardship programs. And, and it's, it's just beginning. Um, the UK and several countries in Europe are a lot farther ahead than the United States. And some um, poor resource countries like India um, are really struggling. So um, we need to help each other and do better. 
So, Stephanie, you mentioned that at the beginning of Tom's treatment, you were unsure as to what the dosage should be, and you were sort of like stumbling around hoping that it was the right amount, sort of estimating. And I wonder that since you mentioned that there are more patients who've been successfully treated, if researchers have been able to sort of approximate more of a like a treatment dosage and what that's looking like. Well, we know a bit more now because of Tom's case about dosage, but that's still an unanswered question about what the optimum dose is. Um, there's um, endotoxin in the phage preparation, which is basically the the um, capsule of the bacterium. And many people in this room are probably more uh, fluent in, in describing it than me. But it's it's the debris, right? And and it, that can cause um, septic shock if if you have. So right now the dosing is often determined by how much endotoxin is in the preparation, as well as the weight of the person. Um, but we've been treating people at 10 to the 9 plaque forming un- units per mil. And so, like, that's, like, you know, a billion phages. Um, And if you um, dose at too low a level, the phage will not be able to get to its intended target. And then, you know, the bacteria are given the opportunity to become resistant more more quickly. And that's um, been a problem in some of the earlier trials. One interesting thing that fits into that, too, is we were at a a phage meeting just a month ago or so, and there was a discussion about if there's not enough bacteria, what happens? You know, if the phages, it's, they don't have enough to eat, and so it might not work too early. So there's information we don't know, you know, the low end, the, the high end, when do you give what? That's what these trials need to be doing, figuring out. Lots more research needed. <laughs> Thank you so much for this wonderful talk. It's very um, inspirational. Uh, I just had a quick question. So uh, you mentioned that uh, when he gave the first doses of phage, he started performing well, and then all of a sudden it was not good, and then you gave again and it worked better. So like, how did it finally start being constantly better? Well, what had happened um, when I went into the hospital expecting Tom to be awake and he was in septic shock again is that um, everybody assumed that it was the phage that was causing this. And, um, and Chip said, when someone is this sick and so close to death, you can't assume that it's the treatment. It could be something else. So he said, what you do is you change all the lines. So all of the different tubes and catheters and everything that, that change them all because it could be that there's an, an infection that came from the outside that is different. And it, so it turned out, after they cultured his blood, that it was a different organism. It was one that was in his gut that had, you know, um, perforated, you know, part of his, his, you know, fluids were leaking and all sorts of things. So he's, he, and so this organism um, is called um, Bacteroides theta tau micron. <laughs> Sounded like it had been to a few frat parties, is which I said. <laughs> and in the book, I, I said, well, I'll leave it to Tom to you know, get another organism that nobody can pronounce. Um, So I think I'm even missing a syllable. But anyway, um, so luckily that was susceptible to antibiotics. And so um, once we realized this, he he was given the antibiotic to kill that organism. And then we restarted the phage therapy. And then from then on, he started to recover. But you wanted to talk about when I became the uh, phages, the initial phage preparation didn't work. 
Well, there was another wrinkle, and this is getting into the... Of course, like I said, it wasn't a smooth recovery because one of the earliest criticisms of phage therapy is that bacteria can become resistant to phages as well. And so we actually witnessed this in Tom's case, and the Navy was, was willing and able to step in because nobody knew how long it would take before the bacteria became resistant to the phage. We had eight different phages, but it turned out that most of these phages were identical or nearly identical to one another, and they were all hitting the same receptor. So what I mean by that is that if you imagine that there's a bacteria and it has different receptors, so the receptors are like doors and windows that um, the phage can attack attached to. You'd like to have different phage that attack different receptors so that it makes it harder for the bacteria to become resistant. But all of these phages were going after the same window, okay? So luckily, the Navy took Tom's mutated bacteria and went out to a sewage treatment facility nearby in Laurel, Maryland, found a new sample that had a super killer phage that was actually a different type of phage altogether, a pot of phage, for those of you who are into the phage morphology. And this um, organism, this little phage, um, turned out to hit a different receptor. And also, it was synergistic with one of the antibiotics that Tom was receiving. So, And that gave it the one-two punch. And we actually showed that the bacteria changed over time because now it's faced with both the antibiotic and the phage and it it has to make a decision an evolutionary decision what to do now obviously it's not thinking but what's happening is that the phage are are attacking and the and the antibiotic are attacking and the um, bacteria that live are the ones that were susceptible to the antibiotics again because it dropped its capsule or or its coat and that allowed the antibiotic to penetrate. So that's something that has been seen in some of the other cases. So we're looking to exploit this, this synergy between phage and antibiotics that's being seen. Because just imagine that if phage goes into clinical trials and it's not shown to work, but the only thing it does is to actually resurrect a failing antibiotic and make it work again, that's still a game changer. And the pharmaceutical industry is going to be very happy about that because they've invested a lot of money in antibiotics that are sitting on the shelf. So that's probably, I guess, the the last exciting piece of news from Tom's case, but it really has moved the field forward. Uh, Your wife told the story about talking to you and asking you how much treatment you wanted, and you said you were having hallucinations. Did you remember that moment? Yes. (laughs) Yes. And were there any hallucinations around that? Oh, absolutely. At the moment that she asked me, I was a snake, <laughs> a literal snake. I, had, I thought that there was a, a film crew documenting death, the last phases of life. The only thing that was alive in me was a little blinking light in my tail. And I was, people would come down this path. I was in a canyon under a bush and people would come down a path and stand over me and talk about death and Beatles music was playing in the background (laughs) scratchy Beatle music it was and so when she asked me to squeeze her hand the problem I had was I didn't have any hands so I had to stop 
and think. And the reason why there was a hesitation during that period was I had to figure out how to wrap my body around her hand to squeeze it. So that's, that was going on in my wacko mind. <laughs> but what, again, I think was going on, if you, you know, again, I try to make a rational story out of this. I think all human beings always are trying to make rational sense out of what's going on. Maybe you should give up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm crazy. <laughs> I'll stop. <laughs> In um, the other five patients that you've treated here, how, on average, how many phages have been in each treatment, and have they all been a combination of intravenous and kind of site-specific, or has it been solely site-specific for those five patients? Yeah, we tend to dose at the same amount, so like 10 to the 9 PFU per mil, um, and it, it depends on the case. Um, so, for example, we treated a CF patient um, who was not unlike... Mallory, the girl that we lost. Um, in this case, um, she was a, a patient who was on the transplant list for lungs, and she got a multidrug-resistant infection, and so they took her off the list. And when we proposed to her that we treat her with phage therapy to see if it would work, she said, sure. And so what we did in her case was that we gave it to her um, with a nebulizer. So she breathed in the phages. And that's what we did with the fellow who had the lung transplant as well, the John who you saw in the photo. Um, and um, then after that, uh, when we saw that she could tolerate it, we injected it. And the same thing with John. And so when you inject the phages into the bloodstream, they know where they need to go, even though we haven't quite figured it out and caught up to them yet. So in her case, she was treated for about three weeks. It cleared her infection. She went back on the lung transplant list, got her lungs, um, and, and is doing well as far as I've heard. So uh, we, we are very encouraged by this, and that's why we're hoping to treat a lot of CF patients who are waiting for these opportunities. Hi, I have another question along those same lines, and it's great to see you guys. So far from these cases, do you think there's a correlation between gender and sex and the success or not of the treatments accounting for other biological factors? Because it seems that it's been more successful in older men so far, but it, I mean, I'm just curious. I mean. Where's the older man? <laughs> <laughs> it's just really fascinating. Yeah, I don't think we have enough data to to say. In fact, all of these cases are are different. So um, the the patient who had a traumatic brain injury, um, we cleared his infection with phage therapy, um, but he was not going to recover, and his family decided to put him in hospice. So he passed away. So even though that's a success for phage therapy, it's not a success in terms of you know, dealing with the underlying conditions. So I think those are the biggest issues right now is that we're comparing apples and oranges, and what we need to do is have a trial where all the patients have the same kind of condition, the same kind of organism, and then we, you know, we are able to kind of see how the outcomes look. Well, that's next. All right. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. I'm sorry to put a halt to them. Thank you very much, Steph and Tom, for this riveting discussion. Thank you.